happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room for November the 29th, 2018, episode 116. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm joining you Oklahoma City, where I am the Director of Technology at the Cassidy School. I generally introduce myself these days as a technology fear therapist. Uh, it's just always interesting to see how that kind of throws people for a loop because they don't exactly know <laughs> what the heck that means. Uh, but I am joined, as always, by Jason Neifer, Dr. Neifer, as he's known by all his professional colleagues. And he has returned from a 52-hour journey of vacation and patience. So the verdict is worth it, not worth it. Costa Rica was pretty amazing. Um, we're, we, we found a beautiful B&B on the beach about three hours outside the capital city of Costa Rica of San Jose and, uh, decent Wi-Fi, which is actually something I want to talk a little bit about based on one of the articles tonight. Some interesting notes about Wi-Fi versus, uh, cell coverage, uh, in a lot of nations. Uh, decent internet, wonderful swimming pool, uh, you know, two minute walk from an ocean. Like it, it, it was pretty great. So we, I would say despite the long journey there and back and spending almost more time uh, traveling than we did actually hanging out uh, at the locale, it was a pretty, pretty wonderful trip. So we're feeling very tanned, rested and, and ready to take on um, the week. And, you know, the great thing is, is that, you know, tomorrow we'll be um, starting off, uh, you know, the work week and it's Friday. So it's, it's back for one day and then off on a vacation, which would be the way I'd recommend really doing any vacation and returning back home. So, um, I have been doing a lot of reading, a lot of interesting stuff going on in the technology world. And that's, this is our opportunity to process through that. So for those of you listening for the first time, this is the edX situation room. We are a weekly podcast where we take a look at news headlines from across the universe, and we try to put a little bit of an educational spin on them um, as they impact our lives and the lives of educators across the United States. And we have three live viewers. Um, because I did not bring my USB-C charger home, I am not using a laptop. I am iPad only, and I don't, actually don't know if I can get the chat here. So we do have a live chat that we welcome you to chime into, and hopefully either Jason or I will be able to access that during our show and give some voice to any questions or comments that you have. We want to direct everyone to our website, edtechsr.com slash links, where you will find a link to a Google document. It's embedded there as well. I think we have perhaps twice as many links as we normally do. And so, uh, yeah, it's going to be exciting. So, Jason, where shall we start this evening? Well, uh, I've got a lot of uh, interesting uh, kind of takes on things related to uh, mobile Internet. So maybe let's start there. First and foremost, kind of a consumer note, uh, Google announced yesterday that their so-called Project Fi, which is their cell phone service that has been around for, I think, three or four years now, um, has graduated out of Project Mode. It's now known as Google Fi. And the reason why I mention that is that uh, Wes and I are both big team mobile fans. Uh, we do that because it has a great unlimited plan. And um, uh, I've been very happy with the T-Mobile service. And in fact, in my trip in Costa Rica recently, uh, T-Mobile was uh, once again a great provider because I was able to go to 
there and utilize my phone without any additional costs or charges that turned the phone on and immediately found a local provider that was a partner with T-Mobile and my phone worked as is without issue. And Project Fi also offers, I'm sorry, Google Fi offers something very similar. The big uh, new announcement with uh, the evolution of, of Project Fi to Google Fi is that now works with most cell phones, so you can bring your own device to Google Fi. Before, uh, Google Fi involved a handful of phones, usually six or seven at a time that were supported. Its big amazing thing was that it was uh, a a third-party carrier that stacked on top of T-Mobile, Sprint, and I believe U.S. Cellular, cellular, uh, and then it effortlessly jumped from tower to tower to tower, which whatever the b- best signal was for your call or your data. Um, now, if you bring your own device, that's not the case because uh, the, there's some hardware magic that goes on there. But they have a really novel plan that I think is very interesting. In fact, I'm going to look at for my parents. They charge $20 a month for service and then $10 a month per gigabyte until you hit four gigs and then the rest of the data for the month is free. So in essence, you have unlimited data uh, for $60 a month per phone. Now, if you bring your own device, it doesn't switch from um, tower to tower to tower, and you'll have to excuse, I have, uh, my cat has been... We try uh, to bring live entertainment to the show besides the two of us. So animals, right. Jason has the circus uh, help usually. Yes, yes. So this is uh, Lily the cat who is uh, uh, basically jumped on top of me when I got home today. Missed human touch, I think. But come here, come on. So as she knocks my microphone over. So um, so it's basically unlimited data for $60 a month. I think they prioritize data or, or, or cap speed after 15 gigs. But for my parents, who uh, are currently on the rest of my family's Verizon plan, they don't use really any data and, in fact, are rarely away from a Wi-Fi signal. So that might be basically $20 a month. Uh, cell service for my parents. So uh, we talk about uh, uh, cell providers uh, fairly frequently here, and I think it is an important piece that that impacts schools in that, you know, our students and uh, their parents are accessing uh, increasing amounts of data from a mobile standpoint, and as more kids are bringing cell phones in backpacks to our classrooms, what data they can or can't use, I think is an important note. So, Wes, I know that you are a very happy T-Mobile customer. In fact, I think you were one of the reasons why I attempted to use that as a, a switchover a couple of years ago. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts about five. Well, I mean, competition is generally good in, in every context. So uh, I don't know. I mean, I, that does the, the plan that we're on as a family is not offered now and, and we're grandfathered in, we get to stick with it. Basically um, it's, uh, it's, un, you know, it's unlimited everything. Right. Um, and you know, I guess I, I need to figure out what it is when we subtract my son's phone because he's still <clears throat> we're still paying off of his, paying off his phone. But I am not um, I'm not convinced. I, I, I guess that it would necessarily be a better deal. I need to stack that you know side by side. But right. pretty pretty happy with T-Mobile. Um, what's going to be interesting is going to be the 5G transition. We've talked a little bit about that on the show. Um, you know, whether the Sprint and T-Mobile merger gets to go through, and then just how pardon me, unbelievably fast, 5G is going to be, um, uh, we've got an op-ed actually that, that I can uh, reference and kind of segue to a little bit that relates, but it's like, what's it going to change? You know, we've had Airbnb, uh, Uber, um, 
Lyft, these different apps that have been enabled by 4G LTE and by how quick that internet has been, you know, before that kind of high speed connectivity, those particular businesses, you know, and, and operations couldn't have happened. So I don't know. I, I don't, I don't see myself switching much, but is it, is it viable for you where you are in Montana as far as Fi? It is. And in fact, part of the reason why it's the case is because Sprint is starting to make a play for Montana. Uh, they don't advertise it, but in the last six months, uh, Sprint towers have popped up in Western Montana, which means that if I bought a project, or I'm sorry, a Google Fi phone, one of the five or six phones available, uh, in that process, uh, it would be able to take advantage of that. I think for me, the thing that's, that's super interesting about this is that, um, there are obviously uh, efforts, and I'm glad you mentioned 5G because there's another article I want to point out tonight related to kind of mobile internet that um, there are a lot of countries, I think it's 33 of them now, that the mobile speed exceeds the wired speed in their countries. And I believe a long time ago, very early on the podcast, we talked a little bit about the notion of in emerging markets where telephone was never a, a real reality for the masses, that mobile internet and mobile phone service was a kind of a no-brainer because it's so much cheaper to roll out mobile phone access than it is to roll out uh, copper wire phone access. And I think you're seeing in a lot of countries that were you know, late to expanding internet for the masses that it's cheaper for them to allow for a mobile broadband than it is to try to create wired broadband in those areas. As it turns out, that was kind of my experience in Costa Rica in the last week. Um, we picked this Airbnb because they advertised good, stable internet. Uh, I did work two days from Costa Rica, so I was able to access and, and do my you know, eight-hour workday without issue. But I found out while I was there that the reason why that's the case is because one of the owners of the uh, B&B that we were at there, um, uh, Dutch expats that live in Costa Rica, uh, he does uh, online work for for uh, his trade. He is a, 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 a internet marketer by trade and works with a number of local companies. And he had to kind of find a guy, and I, and I, I, I say that very purposely, like found a guy that was able to provide him. Um, he uses a... Jose? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, some, some dude he found that was able to provide him. They have DSL access in their neighborhood, but it was painfully slow, well under a megabit uh, of internet access. And he has 12 down, which, you know, compared to the typical cable speed in the United States is, is very slow, but he pays uh, 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 a lot more for that than he would otherwise, and it's a, a wire, I'm sorry, wireless internet connection over a couple of paired antennas with someone that, that he knows in, in the neighborhood that has a lot faster of a connection. And I think that's a interesting piece that, you know, it may end up that in a lot of areas, the wireless internet access is really going to be where it's at to provide kind of access to the masses. Well, I think I'd like to segue over uh, to this article uh, uh, from Bloomberg on November 13th called Chess is the Killer App. And the segue here is that 5G is going to be unbelievably fast. Uh, in fact, it's going to be so fast that perhaps in many schools today, the bandwidth that an individual student or teacher is going to have on their phone right. may exceed the the total wired you know, bandwidth that the school has today, depending. I mean, it depends on how much you have. 
But um, a, a related issue to that actually is net neutrality, right? In the United States, we we treat our cell phone data different than we do our landline data. Uh, the, the cell line data is metered. And even though we've got some metering going on, that's not as widespread with landline. And so anyway, this article is really a great one. It's called Chess is the Killer App, How and Why a 1,500-Year-Old Game Has Conquered the Internet. And it's interesting to read about, you know, how chess has has become something interesting to watch. There's different versions. There's bullet chess where you only have a minute to, you know, make your move. And and we actually have trash talking social media using, you know, chess champions. Um, but uh, what I think is so interesting is when they talk about um, this broader and more significant lesson. I'll read this paragraph. The broader and quite significant lesson is that we are not very skilled at predicting how the internet will change the world. Basketball, too, has boomed with the internet and social media. The showcasing of stars, the brilliance of individual dunks and three-point shots, mesh with Twitter and gifts in a way that the slower pace of baseball does not. Seeing a right fielder trash talk on social media just doesn't have the resonance of a flamboyant basketball star who has the ball in his hands and a lot more often a lot more often and stares down his opponents and then blows by them. And so then it talks about chess and, you know, bullet chess and these other things. So anyway, pretty fascinating. And one of the things that I do love about, you know, doing the show with you, Jason, and being encouraged to read so many articles and and get ready for the show is I think I am perhaps, you know, seeing into the future with a little bit more clarity. Um, But no matter how clear we think we're seeing, you know, it is – we're we're just on we're on a roller coaster with unknown twists and turns and uh, anyway that article is is a uh, enjoyable reminder of that so absolutely so okay where shall we head to next oh gosh we got to talk about Mars we got to talk about CRISPR let's go to CRISPR so I put this under biotech genomics uh, MIT Technology Review November twenty fifth Chinese scientists are creating CRISPR babies and this is without an ER this is C R I S P R Oh my goodness we've talked about this on the show before uh, there's a great book called Industries of the Future that talks about how big bio uh, technology and genomics are going to be so a a uh, a doctor and scientist in China. Uh, was able to get permission of only a few folks, but they were able to sign off with the the ostensible reason that I think the father was HIV positive, and so they wanted to prevent the babies from being HIV positive, and so actually used this uh, genetic editing tool called CRISPR, which allows the scientists to snip out part of the genetic code uh, when when the the baby uh, wasn't an embryo, it was just a single you know cell organism, snip out this code and then I guess enzymes allow the the code to be changed. And so, <clears throat> Wired on November twenty eighth has an article: the Chinese CRISPR baby debacle takes another dark turn. Um, they had a international forum, I think it was in Hong Kong, and. Um, the uh, scientist was there presenting. So the first uh, sentence is rogue scientist. Hey, Jan Kui failed to appear at a planned panel presentation on Thursday. So he gave a presentation about the research and the experiment that he did. And it was supposed to be basically facing um, uh, folks that would, would, would question him. And so he didn't show up for that. And so, um, the third article there from Bloomberg is actually a video, Bloomberg on November 28th. 
CRISPR co-inventor disgusted. And the bottom line is we have a lot of different guidelines and international agreements and, and, uh, you know, attempts to try and basically prevent a Frankenstein situation where uh, doctors are experimenting on human beings and doing things that have not been uh, thoroughly vetted. And so we don't know what the unintended consequences of this will be. And they're saying, you know, the cat's out of the bag. It's going to be really hard to turn back the clock. But, you know, scientists, uh, hospitals, universities, international bodies are discussing this and the ways in which we can try and rein in science and not uh, have people doing things like this, which, according to the articles, are extremely reckless and extremely irresponsible. So, Jason, what do we do in our schools today? Is this even something we should be talking about? Are, is this too much for the young children to handle, talking about genetic editing? No, and in fact, uh, one of the things I, I had a conversation, this was probably two or three years ago with uh, one of the biology teachers in my program, and I'm the assistant director of the state virtual school in Montana, and we were talking about how much the teaching of biology has changed, and it, as it turns out genetics now is a big part of the discussion that that uh, happens when you teach biology in 2018, and so um, obviously you know, application of, of, of content is extremely important, and I think having discussions discussions about the future of these technologies and how they may impact uh, in, in the near, medium, and long-term future is super important. But I think the, the uh, you know, bigger headline for me here is that you know, these technologies need to be implemented mindfully, right? And I, I guess I... I, I hate to go back to this uh, so frequently, but I think we, we see evidence of this in all the hand-wringing right now about social media and Facebook. I, obviously, a big deal and something we need to consider, but I think we were having the wrong discussions about social media, and we didn't dig deeply enough into social media before it impacted something very real and near to us uh, in the United States. And that, I think, is, is recent elections, and also, I think, some of the, the mental health issues that are, are starting to come up related to social media and that's you know we uh, obviously societally we need to have those those discussions and we need to have some you know good um, honest uh, conversations about that but I think even more importantly those conversations need to be happy in the classrooms because it's it's unlikely that that uh, 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 people of westernized age will be dealing with this it's going to be students in, that are now in their teens and 20s that are going to become the leaders of the scientific revolution that this is all a part of they're going to have to come to terms with this sometime in, in the relatively near future. And so those discussions start now. And I and one of the things I think we need to be considering in terms of our core curriculum is literally the degree to which philosophy and ethics becomes a core part of what we are talking about to provide tools to not just scientists, but citizens to grapple with these kinds of issues because these things are happening now. And as the children of today come of age and our starting families, you know, we're going to have more opportunities for folks to be able to make choices if they would want about babies. Uh, you know, the scary part of this that's referenced in some of these articles is the the governments that might create, you know, super soldiers that can't feel pain. And, um, you know, this <laughs> will certainly have some implications for professional athletes. I know we've got a a fair number of folks here in Oklahoma that, that hold back, you know, the boys early on. So they're going to be larger linemen. And that's probably not just an Oklahoma thing that happens other places. But, you know, in terms of just 
you know, age and thinking of sports and, and that kind of thing. But this is, you know, a different ball game when we're talking about the actual modification of uh, the genetic code. So this isn't in these articles, but one of the things that I've, I've read and been thinking about is how, you know, much like in, uh, in debate, for instance, you know, students get in, uh, get introduced, especially values debate to different kinds of value criteria and utilitarianism and deontology and different ways of, of making decisions and weighing things. And so, you know, I can't, of course, say for sure what we need to be doing to get ready for this world because it's going to be, and it is, a world of unanticipated consequences, just like we've seen with elections and social media. <clears throat> but I do think that trying to help equip students with skills um, and citizens with skills to be able to grapple with these kinds of issues and, and to have some philosophical and some ethical frameworks to turn back to and to think about as they and we consider them would be a part of what we can do. So, where should we go next? Let's go ahead and knock Mars out, too, because obviously that's that's been uh, in the headlines the last couple of days as well. All right. Well, uh, if you did not know, we, the United States, NASA, landed another probe called InSight this week on the Red Planet. It was launched back, I think, in May. And so <clears throat> there's an article from The Guardian on November 26th. NASA's Mars InSight probe touches down on the Red Planet. Um, there was an interesting article in a, a USA Today publication, interestingly, called Cincinnati.com, uh, saying we're the first humans to see a Mars sunset, but Twitter doesn't have it right because uh, there was a, a tweet thinking about verifying information and not exactly fake news in the way we think of it normally, but just, you know, verifying um, that basically claimed to be the first uh, Mars sunset. And it was not actually the first one. They said this... Uh, tweet was, was I think actually from the Curiosity rover, um, and no, from the Spirit rover. And Curiosity, they've, on the article, they've got an animated GIF of the sun going down. But this really, this, this is absolutely stunning, right? Being able to go from, I think it was 12,000 miles per hour to zero on the, on the surface of the planet. Uh, if you saw Matt Damon and, uh, what was the movie about with Mars, um, I'll have, to, I'll have to Google it. Maybe our chat room can help us out. Um, just a just a fantastic, you know, fictional t uh, look at a, at a at a Mars mission. But I mean, this is for real, and these are real images that are that are coming back. The um, mission here of the Mars Insight is going to be to to take a look at the interior of Mars, and there I think the the uh, probe or whatever is going to go down like sixteen feet, and then it's going to uh, be able to. Detect and you know not just earthquakes, but give us a lot a lot of insight into perhaps the composition of of the planet. So yes, Scott Summer, thank you. The Martian, a very challenging title. Um, my brain, I crossed the Rubicon sometime in the last couple weeks with my my brain. I now have the you know a, a, an older brain that is not just working as fast. So that was probably that will probably show itself more often on the show. So did you uh, follow this any on on Twitter, uh, Jason and? Uh, I think we can probably all agree this is an exceptionally exciting thing to show students, especially if we want to inspire the next generation of uh, scientists and explorers. 
Absolutely so, and I think a lot of interest in uh, Around the Martian, very popular movie, and there were actually a number of of, of kind of space movies that have started to reimagine uh, what a modern mission to Mars looks like. I think has has been a really positive thing. Um, obviously, a lot you know, uh, a lot left to do before we can start thinking about human missions. Um, I'm reminded of the Mary Roach book, and I can't remember the title off the top of my head. Um, that talks about the uh, it's called packing for Mars. That talks about the the exceptional uh, technolo- technological challenges that are are left uh, before we are able to to really send a human mission uh, to to Mars. Uh, 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 so I think that's something that that uh, you know it's exactly what you're talking about, Wes. We can inspire folks to step in and you know start moving through those challenges. Um, I strongly suggest reading, by the way, that Mary Roach book. It's hilarious. She has a great way of kind of describing uh, scientific data in a very interesting and positive way um and uh i strongly recommend that if you want to get a sense of some of the technological challenges i might uh, actually get that for our son we're thinking about you know christmas shopping maybe that could be a, a nice topic for next week's show could be uh you know wish lists and and uh tech gifts for the the season because if we do that early enough right folks will have time to order it the full title of the book is packing for mars the curious science of life in the void Yep. And so. she goes through some old transcripts of, of some of the early uh, human missions uh, just around the Earth and, and, and talking about some of the challenges that uh, existed in things like the Apollo missions that we still haven't resolved today. So uh, interesting stuff if you're interested. So, And one of the two, two quick other things about that, uh, the article about the sunsets notes that the dust in Mars and just the atmospheric conditions generally lend a blue tint to the sunsets. So lots of, of bluish sunsets on the planet. And the other thing that just occurred to me is, right, here we are landing on the, on, on Mars again, right? I mean, we're, I think wasn't Viking in like 76 or something, either 76 or 79? I think so, yeah. 70s. Uh, so, you know, done this before, but, you know, thinking about the challenges that we have, thinking about poverty, um, one of, uh, the, the, the movies I think about quite a bit actually at working at the school that I do is, uh, I think it was Elysium and that maybe it was Matt Damon one too. But anyway, it was about the, you know, the wealthy being up uh, above the, the clouds, above the, the war. And then, you know, the way the earth went, has, went dystopian. Anyway, we've got issues to, to solve, right? We've got poverty. We've got, uh, you know, very, very big challenges. The, the big plastic mass in the middle of the Pacific ocean. Like, how are we going to resolve these kinds of things? And so anyway, Students in our classrooms today need to be the ones, hopefully, that are going to be energized to figure these kinds of things out and, you know, problem-solving skills, collaboration, technology, all of those things are going to play an important role. And, uh, you know, it's it's exciting to see, I, you know, I'm for a while there, I think we just kind of gave up on space almost, you know, we decided not to have uh, a replacement for the space shuttle and really until Elon Musk and the commercial space market kicked off. Uh, we just didn't have a lot of dynamism, you know, happening with, particularly with the U.S. space program. So I'll mention also, it's going to be very exciting to watch what happens with China. It was back in 2015 because I was still teaching in the STEM classroom when uh, China landed a robot on the moon, on on our moon. And so uh, going to be interesting to see what happens next, right? Because, you know, we got to figure out the, uh, what, protection of astronauts from uh, solar radiation, that's a pretty big deal when you get into far 
Earth orbit and you know doing things like lunar lunar missions and stuff that is beyond. Uh, but we're not the only game in town. Uh, not just the United States and Russia. We've got commercial entities like SpaceX and Virgin Galactic and Blue something. What is the because anyway Amazon uh, founder Jeff Bezos Bezos. Um, you know, has his group as well. So good, good articles and, and definitely good, good stuff to track with and, and let our students know about if we haven't already. Okay, well, let's move on to some kind of nerdier news for the week if we haven't already <laughs> identified the nerd news of the week. Uh, some Google updates. Uh, the Google Pixel Slate, which is uh, the new two-in-one convertible tablet from um, uh, Google, has now been released widely, and uh, a number of reviews have made it onto the Internet. Uh, I, I think it's interesting because there has been a lot of kind of vague criticism of the, the platform. For those unaware of that, right now, a year ago, Google released a, a two-in-one called the Pixelbook. It's a really high-end piece of hardware uh, maintaining Google's every-other-year commitment to showing off what high-end hardware can look like for the Chrome OS architecture. And the, the so-called Pixel Slate is a tablet based on Chrome OS that allows you to attach a keyboard to it. Uh, what my understanding is a fairly premium keyboard to it to then convert it into something that's closer to a laptop. And I've probably looked at uh, five or six reviews. I've watched one or two of them. And I would say that everything so far has been generally mixed in its um, uh, in its uh, interpretation of, of, of the ability of the hardware to stand up to the hype. So uh, there's also a very interesting article that from, I believe it's from The Verge today, that talks about how Google is like just about every other company that's tried to create a great tablet experience and that they just are kind of missing the point of that. And the reason why I want to talk about this tonight is because I feel like the education market's a little different than just about everywhere else because tablets um, have uh, certainly made inroads in a number of schools. I don't think it's universal for every school that I know of that's very successfully rolled out iPads to their school, I can name one or two others that have felt like the iPad was well underpowered for what they wanted to do inside the classroom. So I, I guess I maybe wanted to start off with a conversation about where tablets look like in 2018 and does anything that's recently been released, whether it's the super nice pro iPad or this Pixel Slate, uh, change the architecture there. And I will jump in with one quick comment, Wes, and I particularly want to hear uh, uh, from you from the standpoint of a tech director that's actively purchasing uh, items on a regular basis uh, for classrooms about this, but there's been a universal panning of Android tablets, and I honestly don't understand the criticism um, of, of the platform, and I think part of it is that I think a lot of folks, and I'm nervous my cat's going to actually pull out my, my uh, mic wire here, um, the something that I find really interesting is that the same people that are criticizing Android tablets would probably tell you that any tablet Op, tab, tablet operating system. So whether we're talking about uh, iOS on the iPad or we're talking about Android on an Android tablet um, or an Android uh, uh, kind of wannabe like the Fire OS on the Android tablet, they would all tell you that those are devices that haven't lived up to promise and that phones do a better job at most of the things that the tablets want to do and yada, yada, yada. Um, and I, I never really understood that because I, I like a tablet. I think a tablet's a great 
great uh, companion. Um, it doesn't make as much sense in 2018 when larger phones are available. I'm using an LG V20 is my current phone. It's a six inch uh, Android. I guess it's a phablet to use that term, although um, my wife always rolls her eyes at me when I use the term phablet um, in everyday language. But I think that's something that um, you know, it's, it's always been very interesting to me that the tablet OSs and tablet devices seem fairly universally panned with the exception of ones that are running full operating systems like the Microsoft Surface. So, Mr. Tech Director, or I should say Dr. Tech Director, what do you think about the state of tablets in education in 2018? Well, uh, Peggy had a question in the chat. Isn't a Chromebook considered a tablet? And some are. I think... There's several different exciting things happening. Number one, uh, both with Microsoft and then with uh, Chromebook manufacturers, we've seen some really exciting merges between the laptop form factor and the touchscreen tablet, in some cases with removable keyboard, in others with a 360-degree hinge. The um, Chromebooks, which we refreshed this last summer, with were the Lenovo 300Es, which have a 360-degree tablet, or uh, sorry, hinge, but then are also a touchscreen and then use a number two pencil as a stylus, which is unbelievable. That's the only product I've I've seen out there yet that does that. You don't have to get uh, a, a specific stylus for it. I was just talking with one of our math faculty this evening. Actually, I had to stay late at, at school. We did some video conferencing with our board of trustees. Yeah, it all worked. <clears throat> anyway, I was there visiting with him, and he had last tried to use an iPad as a replacement for a smart board years ago before the Apple Pencil, when the styluses were, were really crayon-like and absolutely not precise. And so I was encouraging him for us to find a way that he could give a try with the new Apple Pencil because, I mean, it is, it's the Harry Potter pen. In fact, I started a, a post, which I'll probably have up on my blog finally this weekend, uh, you know, talking about... And I don't know if I have the right metaphor, but basically it's, it, it is like living at Hogwarts. You know, this is my wand and my Google assistant <clears throat> enables me to cast spells where I have various things happening in, in my house, uh, with the internet of things and, you know, just with podcasts and listening. So this is a game changer, right? The Apple pencil and, and the Apple pencil too. This is very awkward as a first generation Apple. Uh, pencil because literally the way you charge it is you you plug it in and it sticks out of your um, you know what generation five or, or six iPad the new Apple pencil which is not backwards compatible is magnetized and so you can you know stick it against the side of, of your iPad so as the tech director uh, looking at ordering things we are on the cusp it needs to get administrative approval of giving our teachers a choice this year of either staying with uh, the the MacBook Air, not the newest one, because we're not quite ready to make that jump to USB-C and have all new adapters and, and all of that, but we're still, you know, you, plugging in with smart boards using USB thumb drives, and so the older <clears throat> version, um, a, a generation back MacBook Air, or a newer iPad Pro, because that, that iPad Pro... If you did not watch the demo of the Apple event where they announced it, I mean, they were working with a three gigabyte Photoshop file in Photoshop and the opportunity for that device to become a desktop replacement is, is more viable than ever. So much as a Chromebook for most, for, for a lot of folks that aren't using special software, but can use the web, um, you know, the iPad has that same kind of capability. But the other thing that I would say, and this is to your question, Jason, about the Android tablets and why there's so much criticism, 
you know, so I did for nine months go switch to an Android phone and on, on all of my consumptive and many of my productivity apps, no problem, right? All of the Google stuff runs over there. Um, you know, Twitter, social media, uh, Flipboard, I mean, a little Evernote, but basically all of the things that I use on a productivity basis and then to consume media, they're, they're all there on Android, but the app ecosystem is still much more robust on iOS especially as far as creative apps and just the ways in which I think um, app developers, I don't know, this is still, it's still a struggle, but um, it just, it seems to be a much more robust environment for uh, creative apps. Maybe I am off base with that, but that's, that's my perception. So I think it is important for us to pay attention to touch interfaces, uh, being able to write, you know, just not thinking that it's all about keyboarding, and so we're, we're hopefully, I think, going to be at a point where we're going to offer that kind of an option to our faculty. But there is a question like, do I need more than one device? For myself personally, do I want you to take my iPad? No, I don't. Do I want you to take my laptop? Not if you want me to you know, stay productive in my day job because it's my absolute number one most important tool. Um, but so is my phone, you know. So um, are you looking, Jason, at... Any technology purchases in the near, let's say, let's say six months uh, that would, you know, be a part of this conversation thinking about tablet, laptop? Sure. Uh, no. And my current uh, daily driver device is the 2017 Pixel Book, which I've been enormously satisfied with. And as we've talked about in the past. I have no shortage of other devices to step in and replace that if that should get run over by a bus or otherwise uh, disappear from my life. I think the thing that I keep thinking about is that if I want to maybe peek back in to the Apple uh, uh, ecosystem for at least a device, uh, or at least a mobile device, and I am tempted by the Pro just because it's a beautiful piece of hardware, which, by the way, I saw one, uh, the the new uh, larger uh, uh uh, latest edition iPad Pro was on a an airplane uh, uh, last week on my way to vacation, and I, I it 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 looked so different. Uh, it's stunning piece of hardware, beautiful screen, um, beautiful form factor. But I think the thing for me that I keep going back to with tablets is that you know for a lot of users, I think the phone is enough for them. And the of course the challenge for that with schools is that you know, there's still a lot of questions about uh, you know uh, whether or not you want to allow us uh, 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 phones schools is, is certainly a philosophical discussion that schools need to have. And then, of course, when you're relying on bring-your-own-device systems, even if it's for mobile phones, you're going to have a wide disparity in the hardware and software platforms available to students and not a ton of apps that have a universal experience uh, in the creation mode or even in the consumption mode uh, that would be useful inside of a classroom environment. So I still wonder if the tablet is doomed to die at some point. Um, it feels like Apple and the latest uh, iPad iterations, the latest iPad Pro iterations, could be, as some commentators suspect, uh, some kind of, of, of medium step to eventually making the laptop and the iPad the same thing, at which time I think you would be back to two devices again, a phone and some kind of laptop-tablet hybrid. But uh, interesting to watch the market. And um, I will also say that there's been a lot of articles, uh, and I only posted the, the kind of uh, semi-critical ones in the Pixel Slate, but uh, a lot of people are dissatisfied right now by the general quality of 
of Google hardware at release. The Google Pixel 3 phone, the newest cell phone by Google released uh, 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 several weeks ago, uh, apparently had terrible issues uh, out of the gate. And I have a, a couple of friends that updated right away that are uh, early adopters in the Google realm that they kind of felt like beta testers because they were having to work through things like Bluetooth issues. In some cases, uh, random apps would not work at all, um, phone to phone to phone. And, you know, considering that, you know, uh, that I would think that that a premier provider like Google would test things very aggressively before releasing them, um, you know, out to the public, that that's that's highly disappointing. So Google seems to, uh, you know, not be immune from the criticism of, of major providers when it comes to maybe releasing products slightly before they should. Couple thoughts there uh, from the chat room. Scott Summer says, "If we haven't looked into Google Jamboard as an app for iOS or Android, he really thinks it has good potential uh, to replace the Smartboard. I, I actually should see about that running on a Chromebook um, because you know Chromebooks that can run Android apps would be able to run Jamboard from the um, from the the Google Play Store. Um, I was able to make a family uh, upgrade." from an iPhone 6S Plus to a 7S Plus and am enjoying the speed bump whenever you just have one generation, you know, bump like that. Obviously, it's not as dramatic as, as if you've waited more generations. But here's a good segue to other articles that we have for tonight under the heading of Microsoft. This is from The Telegraph on November 28th. Microsoft becomes the world's most valuable company after passing Apple for the first time since 2010. This is pretty amazing because, um, you know, Apple has been this incredible cash engine and still is, right? It's not like they've been torpedoed. Um, but Microsoft has really, you know, been successful in turning itself around, not trying to directly compete with Apple, right, on the iPhone. I mean, they basically ditched the, the Windows phone, which they took over from Nokia and, and was kind of a of a big failure. Uh, this article mentions how Steve Ballmer, former CEO of Microsoft, had really dismissed the iPhone as a niche product. Um, but, you know, Microsoft is very much looking to at businesses and the cloud. Um, this is some interesting data. It says, until now, Apple had been the world's most valuable public company since 2013 when it surpassed ExxonMobil, apart from a brief moment when Google's parent company, Alphabet, surpassed it in 2016. Microsoft surpassed General Electric as the world's most valuable company in 1998 at the beginning of the dot-com boom, but lost its position in 2002 to networking company Cisco. Those kind of statistics are really reminders of uh, what Alvin Toffler calls the third wave, that transition from the second wave of industrialization to the third wave of the information economy and information society. And, um, you know, I, I am not a Microsoft lover. Okay. I know that'll just come as a shock to some of the long-term listeners, but <clears throat> I'm really not a Microsoft fan. However, in the same way that I am happy to see competition in the cell phone market, I'm very happy to see competition in the world of laptops and the ways that Microsoft is attempting to innovate. And, and I think having some success, um, because of Minecraft actually, and the fact that Chromebooks cannot, um, you know, run Minecraft. I mean, we're, we're potentially going to look at maybe some Windows S laptops, uh, at least one card of them that, you know, students could be using. That's Microsoft's Chromebook priced um, device that can only run things from the Microsoft store, not from, you know, just the, the web in general. So that was an interesting article. And there was one other Microsoft one I'll do quickly. Uh, this was from MIT Technology Review on November 29th. 
U.S. Pardon me, Army soldiers will soon wear Microsoft's HoloLens AR goggles in combat. And so, I mean, I know that the military is, is really on the cutting edge and has been for a long time with augmented reality. Um, but thinking about them, you know, actually using this in, um, you know, combat <laughs> reminds me of that movie, The Ghost in the Shell. Uh, where you know somebody's blinded and then his his implanted eyes, which we're not we're not there. That's by the way a real litmus test of of biotech is when we're able to do full you know uh, eye um, replacement surgery and and connect you know however many thousands of of neurons connect the eye to the brain. <clears throat> anyway, he he has an, an implant that allows him to see beyond the spectrum of the of the visible human eye, you know, and see infrared. And that's kind of what they're talking about here for soldiers is being able to have night vision. And but I don't know, I don't understand exactly how that's going to work with with a Hololens, other than you're going to have sensors out here, perhaps that are going to be sensing your environment, and then you're going to have a VR headset, and instead of looking through an an ocular, you know, binocular glasses, whatever, I mean, you're you're going to be in a completely uh, computer-generated environment, but you think of the heads-up displays and the ways in which we're going to be able to process information and it's going to be presented, uh, and then the importance of technology on the battlefield, right? Crazy. So I thought that was really a, you know, kind of uh, article from the future, but it's happening right now. And it's Microsoft. So Jason, will you be investing in Microsoft immediately following tonight's show? Uh, no, I will not. Um, other than uh, I will, and I, I'm I'm using a first generation. Uh, I guess it's a um, I want to call it a Pixelbook, but that's the the Google product. My my current work laptop is the first generation of the kind of industrial foldable um, uh, Microsoft notebook one, the one with the nice hinge on it, and it's it's a super nice laptop. I mean, I've been very happy with the performance. I did have an issue where uh, the hard drive died a couple of months ago, and it was uh, a little slower than I had uh, wanted to get uh, a service claim in. But to be honest, with the modern day laptop, I mean, these are not like the ten year ten year ago Lenovo's that were basically like old desktop machines you could pull apart and and kind of do a, a lot of user service repair. Uh, you certainly can't do that with modern. Uh, uh, MacBooks or the Mac, especially the MacBook Pro, you need a a, a set of industrial tools uh, from uh, companies like iFixit to be able to go in there and and, and replace even basic things at this point. But um, you know, I, I think I, I am also happy that Microsoft is viable. I'm actually a little sad that Windows Phone died, not because I was really that interested in the platform, although I did uh, play with one for a, a couple of weeks uh, when that was becoming a thing four or five years ago, um, and it was really just a trial run to see if I liked the platform or not, I did. I just didn't hook up with anything since I'm so kind of Google stuck at both a home and at work. But I agree with you. Having a viable uh, alternative to these pieces, where there's three or four marketplaces and three or four ecosystems that are all competing for for customers, I think we definitely very much benefit from that at the end. From the chat room, Peggy's pointing out uh, an article. Uh, Apple is giving an additional $100 credit if you've got a iPhone 6 generation or newer. Um, so I think that's maybe on top of your $100. And, and Apple's really pushing for this. A week or so ago, we had the article about Apple turning into a luxury company. And arguably, Apple has been there for a long time, but especially with the pricing of their phones and the fact that in you know some recent quarters, they have sold fewer phones, but it has had a higher profit margin because they've increased the, 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 um, you know, ticket price. 
for those phones. So with this dip in stock price, it, that is because of, uh, according to the articles um, that I had read, the lower iPhone sales. Um, and so anyway, I, I guess I'd, I'm going to just offer that I hope Apple doesn't lose its soul and its core, and I don't think they're going to in terms of innovation. But, you know, it's very, very interesting, right, that Apple, the technology company, and this happened in 2007. I was there to see Steve on the stage say it. You know, we're no longer Apple Computer. We are Apple. And, you know, iTunes and the iPod, but, but iTunes revenue overall, you know, at that time was, was becoming more than 50% of the income of the, uh, of the company. And, and then, you know, the iPhone has just been so huge in terms of dominating the, the profitability and, and just the, on a percentage basis of, of what Apple makes. So <clears throat> like other companies that have highly successful products, Apple faces the innovators dilemma. Uh, if you haven't read that with by Clayton Christensen, and Microsoft has faced that, right, with Microsoft Office and Windows, these incredible cash cows that were generating so much revenue and the temptation of, of some companies is to kind of sit back on their laurels and, you know, not innovate. And I think Kodak would probably be a classic case study of that, a company that did not innovate, had very innovative technology back in the day, but didn't innovate and, and completely died and is not even in existence today. So, you know, kudos to Microsoft and, and the leadership there and the ways in which they're innovating. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how Apple responds to this, uh, especially from a pricing standpoint. From a school standpoint, I will say what I've said before, that it's exceptionally wonderful that for the first time, the, the lower end iPad, you know, dropped in price. And we can still get those now for about $300. Right. And so if you're going to look for a device that's going to last, let's say, four or five years, I mean, we've talked about this before. Google is really saying Chromebooks for three only. Um, we are just at the point about, we, we haven't thrown away, we don't use iPad 1s, but we, we actually still have some iPad 2s in use. I know that might make some people cringe, but um, our maintenance team actually uses the School Dude app, you know, Maintenance Direct for their <clears throat> tickets and everything, and it works just fine on older iPads. We're not, we're not checking those. So anyway, it is a um, important thing with respect to, to to price as well as function and how long those devices last. And so I, uh, I was ho- I was hoping that some people, other people, I'm sure were that Apple might make this jump into a tablet. Um, laptop, you know, or, or actually making the, the laptop, uh, ha- having a touch screen. We're not seeing him do that. Um, cause I think they're continuing to say, you know, it's a multi device world, but you're probably right, Jason. A lot of people are going to be happy with their phablet phones or their really large phones. And they're not going to see the need. Um, personally, I'm still wanting the avatar, you know, remember those kind of screens where there are the, the really thin right. things that they just pull out and they're just so light. I mean, even, even though I love this iPad and I think this is a generation five iPad, um, it's, it's still kind of heavy. So, um, as they continue to innovate with that, I don't know. I, I see myself, especially with my vision being what it is, my aging years, <clears throat> I like having a large, large screen, larger than I'm going to be able to put in my pocket. So we have probably time for a few more before we geek of the week it. What else is grabbing your attention, Dr. Neifer? Let's see. Um, there's so much that, uh, interesting stuff this week. Oh, just a quick one that is, I, it, we've talked about this, I think, a couple of years ago because it's kind of silly. Um, the Guardian on November 18th reported that Google News is considering just shutting down 
uh, Google News in Europe because there's a new proposal to charge Google a tax every time someone clicks on a link to go to um, articles. And, you know, I would say that uh, aspirationally trying to find a way to fund journalism is a good idea. Like, I think we have to have conversations about, you know, are there ways we can better fund journalism in, in 2018? But let me just assure everyone, uh, this is not the way to do that, right? Like it's a, a, a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. And the, um, the article makes the point that when Spain was talking about doing this uh, a couple of years back, Google went ahead and just shut off Google News in Spain as it turned down, uh, or as it turned out, uh, readership of the online papers went down, right? Like that's, uh, that's, that's what happened. So that because the, the you know, search engines are about discovery, not about theft. So something that I think is, is, is a pretty important piece. I do want to note, however, and I think this is extremely important that, um, you know, we, we have to find a way to fund journalism, right? Like it, it's, it's clear this is an industry that has been desperately impacted by, uh, the, the invention of the internet. And yet we have a massive need for good quality journalism in 2018. And that is a great segue to an op-ed that I put uh, in today's show notes. This is from Motherboard on November the 16th. Targeted advertising is ruining the Internet and breaking the world. Um, This is an op-ed, but really, really uh, important analysis of how the basis not only for Facebook, but also Google, um, these companies have become what the author, Dr. Nathalie Marichal says, represents surveillance capitalism. And so these companies are essentially dedicated to learning as much as they can about us, building as much of, in most cases, a secret profile about us, although Google you know, gives us greater visibility about that than ever. And we've had, because of some pressure, Facebook <clears throat> share some of that. But basically, they want to build this profile so that they can sell that information to companies to be able to target us. And so that is a new term for me, surveillance capitalism. And uh, I really commend this article. In fact, I'm doing a Sunday night newsletter. I have been all all school year since August, and this will probably be my recommended text for the week um, because it really challenges the the assumptions that we have about you know how journalism is funded and how these companies, which really they didn't start out this way. In fact, I think it might be in the Facebook documentary that's on. Pardon me, PBS Frontline, and we had that in the show notes a couple weeks ago. If you haven't watched it, definitely watch that. You can uh, stream it free online. When they made a change, and I think this had to be with Sheryl Sandberg coming to Facebook, and they started to you know, pay and then buy this data that was being collected from the frequent shopper cards and, and these companies that collect this data, and then they merged that together with what you know they had in Facebook. I mean, that's where the surveillance capitalism really, you know, became dangerous and then that gave us Cambridge Analytica and it could be argued it gave us Brexit it gave us our wonderful chief executive that we still have in office in DC and so that is uh, that's worth checking out and reading well shall we geek of the weekend I think we should Um, I'll go fast with only one really quick this week Um, this is not an app I have used but I heard about today from our social media coordinator I have used Hootsuite in the past as a tool to 
uh, work with multiple social media accounts and take something and, and then post it, you know, to different Twitter accounts. You can schedule things. Uh, you can cross post, although there's been some API changes and for Facebook, for instance, and they've tried to reduce in some ways this kind of automation, but the, the app that a cup that both our, our social media coordinator and then uh, my assistant tech director talked about uh, is called Agora Pulse. And so I guess this is uh, a really excellent tool for, you know, scheduling social media, working with multiple accounts. Um, I'm not sure with the free trial exactly what you're going to get. Um, but if you are someone who is managing several different accounts, uh, this would definitely be something to check out with or check out. And it is called Agora Post Pulse. A-G-O-R-A, so like the, I guess, the Greek Agora, uh, Pulse.com. And I would like to point out the Michigan Open Book Project, which is a wonderful effort on the part of Michigan-based educators to put out uh, open-source social studies textbooks, uh, something that I've always been kind of sad about, and part of it's because of the enormous time and effort that goes into making uh, text resources uh, for really any area. But uh, math and science has always been kind of the dominant area for open-source education resources. And for those that are looking to use open-source in their school, department, classroom, school district, uh, there's a lot of great stuff for math and science content. There's relatively little content available for uh, uh, English language arts classrooms, humanities classrooms, history classrooms, government classrooms. But the Michigan Open Book Project provides uh, textbooks, basically a full set of textbooks, K-8 for social studies, and then um, a high school uh, U.S. history textbook that is about 95% complete, a world history textbook that's about 50% complete, a 100% complete government textbook, and a 100% complete economics textbook. And it's really well done stuff. Um, and and so if you're looking for a way to either economize or to take resources that are openly licensed, which means that you can uh, take them and massage them and you know use them however you want to, this is a wonderful website for doing that. And again, uh, already correlated to Michigan standards if you're from there. And if, if so, you've probably already heard about this project. But if you're looking for a you know, pretty well done open source project, uh, really great uh, idea and great results from the folks in Michigan. Fantastic. Well, we want to give shout outs to our chat room tonight. We had uh, some great uh, suggestions and dialogue from them. So Jamie, Peggy and Scott, thank you all for joining us. We normally are here on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain. Uh, but periodically, uh, you know, Jason being the in-demand speaker, which, by the way, he is for hire. I have heard a rumor, um, you know, we'll sometimes need to gallivant about the country and we'll or or the or the hemisphere, as it may be down to Costa Rica. And uh, anyway, so sometimes we're going to make adjustments. The best way to keep track of us is to follow us on Twitter at EdTechSR. That is our handle. We would love for you to tweet to us and let us know if you're listening to the show, if you particularly like the topic something resonated, um, that kind of a shout out is always welcome. We also want to encourage you to visit our website, edtechsr.com, where you'll find links to some compressed 32 kilobit audio versions that you can subscribe to in your favorite podcatcher or listen to on your smart assistant by saying, hey, gee, play the latest episode of the EdTech Situation Room podcast. And you can also uh, link to video versions as well as the YouTube version, and you can subscribe, become one of the folks. We've got, I think, 50 some odd now subscribing to us on YouTube 
and you can see the amazing map that that Jason, you know, has. And you can you too can wonder what the new stickers, you know, that he may have appearing there, you know, will will actually mean. So, Doctor Neifer, where can folks find you when you are not here on the EdTech Situation Room podcast? I am on the Twitters at Tech Savvy Teach, and I work uh, social media and an occasional blogger at the NCC. Tech Savvy Teacher Blog, blog.ncc.org. And again, registration open now for our, our, our February conference. Dr. Fryer will be there, which means that we should maybe schedule a little listener meetup. It'd be great to meet folks that are listening to the podcast. Um, and uh, I'd love to engage online. So let's talk, uh, especially if you disagree. Like I, just because you, you don't agree something the West and I say, we'd love to talk to you about it. We both are debaters in our background and would love to have great, respectful, uh, discussions and I love to have my mind change. It's one of the, my favorite things is when someone convinces me of something different than I already believe. Absolutely. And I am W Fryer on Twitter. My blog speedofcreativity.org has some periodic thoughts that I am sharing and I actually am doing a Sunday Sunday night oops, Sunday night newsletter each week uh doing some experimentation with that um and this video library where I'm putting some tutorials but all my videos I'm making available free for a week and then uh locking them up as it were in the vault. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room. Uh, we will be back next week on Wednesday night. I think I'm going to start a Google Doc of a uh, technology wish list. So look for that to be shared on Twitter as well as in the show notes for tonight. Uh, we'll have all the links to the articles that we talked about in tonight's show notes. And until next week, stay savvy, stay safe, and don't be a stranger. Good night.